Peter, James, and John. Coming down the mountain uh, after the transfiguration of Jesus, we saw that last week earlier in uh, Mark chapter 9. And they're on the way down the mountain, back into the nitty-gritty of ministry. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And what does he find as they come down the mountain? He finds faithlessness. He finds rampant unbelief even among his disciples. He's, he's looking for faith. What does what happens here tell us about the faith he's looking for? What we see in this passage is that the kind of faith Jesus is looking for is humble dependence upon him. Desperate weakness directed toward him. Unpretentious, transparent prayer. Like that of the Father who cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. What did he find? He found in his disciples self-reliance evidenced by prayerlessness. We're meant to find ourselves in this story, right? Whenever we come to a narrative in Scripture, we're meant to look at it and say, okay, where do we, where do we find ourselves here? And so we need to ask as we look at this passage, where do we find ourselves? Do we, do we see ourselves more with the, with the Father or with the disciples or maybe even amongst the crowds or maybe, you know, legalistic scribe type persons? It's right to look to see where we are here, but ultimately we're meant to see Jesus and look to Him and see what He is doing, what His heart is toward people in this text, what He's calling us to as we look to Him. So we're going to look at uh, two of the key figures or groups, and then we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to look at, first, the disciples. And what we see in the disciples is self-reliance evidenced by prayerlessness. Self-reliance evidenced by prayerlessness. Second, we're going to look at the Father in this text. And in the Father, what we see is desperation and weakness directed toward Jesus. Desperation and weakness directed toward Jesus. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus. And we're going to see His urgent compassion toward a faithless generation. So self-reliance evidenced by prayerlessness, that's in the disciples. Desperation and weakness directed toward Jesus, that's in the Father. And then finally, we'll see Jesus and his urgent compassion toward a faithless generation. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We do ask that you would be with us. We pray that by your Spirit, you would help us. Lord, help us to hear what you are saying to us through this text. Lord, as we see ourselves perhaps in different places here in this passage, would you Use that to bring us a conviction of sin where there's a need for repentance, greater confidence and trust in you as we ultimately have happen what all of Scripture is meant to do, and that is point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, so first, the disciples' self-reliance evidenced by prayerlessness. So let's look back at the, at the passage real quick. Verses 14 through 19, again, uh, the, the, the disciples, three disciples, Peter, James, and John, come with Jesus down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and he sees a crowd, he sees a group of scribes, and he sees his remaining nine disciples, right? 
And the scribes and the disciples are arguing with one another. So some commentators think what may have happened here is this father with his son is making his way toward Jesus. He's heard that there are um, that Jesus is doing you know mighty works, and so he makes his way there. And at some point, the scribes may have gotten wind of this, and they come alongside. You know, some of the scribes come with the crowd, with this father, or maybe you know they're kind of making their way, and they they kind of hear this father's going to be asking Jesus to do this miracle and hear, heal his boy, cast out the demon. And so they make their way there. And of course, they don't find Jesus. Jesus and Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain. So here's this crowd. Here's the Father. He's the scribes. You're kind of looking to see what's going to happen. Can we discredit Jesus here? And so the Father brings his son to the nine disciples and says, Can you heal my boy? Can you cast this demon out from my son? And the disciples, of course, as we saw, couldn't. And so potentially the scribes are like, Ha! You know, there's this old saying in that day, as is the representative, so is the, the sender. And so what that meant was if the disciples can do things, if they can, if they can demonstrate the power of Jesus who sent them, then that verifies who Jesus is and his power in his absence. If, on the other hand, these disciples who represent Jesus can't do the works of Jesus, then that discredits Jesus. That was the thinking in the day. And so perhaps the scribes are saying, look, we've been trying to tell you, crowd, this Jesus is a hoax. And we know that because the disciples can't heal this boy. And the disciples, of course, may have been arguing back, no, 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 don't, don't blame us. We're kind of confused. We don't know what's going on, but we can tell you about this Jesus. Hopefully, he'll be coming back down the mountain soon. And so there's this argument going on between the scribes and between the disciples, the crowds there watching, and Jesus makes his way down. And then in verse 18, you know, Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about? And then the, the father steps out and explains what's going on. And we'll look at the, the heart of the passage uh, again in the second point. But then look down at the end of the passage, because here's where Jesus points out what went wrong with the disciples. And so in verse 28, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This, cannot, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what we see here on the behalf of the disciples or in the disciples is self-reliance. Why couldn't we do this? And Jesus is saying, because you didn't ask me to do it. You didn't pray. You didn't ask God to do this. You just kind of assumed that you had that ability and that power within yourself. Now, at one level, it's understandable because back in Mark chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus said, I give you authority to cast out demons. And in Mark chapter 6, they did it. And so it's, you know, we ought to be a little bit sympathetic. We could understand why here in Mark chapter 9, they're thinking, we got this. But that was the problem. They thought they had it. They thought they didn't need Jesus. They were learning a very hard lesson that Jesus' power can't be presumed upon. That it's not like a, um, you know, a, a battery that's been inserted into them, into them and they can draw energy from that in order to do great things. They forgot that they are helpless without Jesus. C.E.B. Cranfield, a, a commentator from long ago, said this, 
To trust in God's power in the sense that we have it in our own control and at our disposal is tantamount to unbelief. For it is really to trust in ourselves instead of in God. Did you catch that? To trust in God's power in the sense that we possess that power in ourselves, in our own control, is actually tantamount to unbelief because it's really saying I'm trusting in myself. I'm not looking to God. The evidence of that, Jesus says, was their prayerlessness. They didn't pray. They didn't ask God to do anything. They didn't believe they needed Him. They were, as Jesus said, faithless. The indictment is unbelief. Their problem was self-reliance. The evidence was prayerlessness. The indictment was to be numbered among the faithless generation. When Jesus cried out, O faithless generation, He wasn't distinguishing between the crowd or the scribes or the disciples. It was all of them, disciples included. Their problem was self-reliance. The evidence of their self-reliance was prayerlessness and the indictment Jesus pointed out was that you're guilty of unbelief. That's what's really going on here. So what about us? What does our prayerlessness reveal about us? It reveals our unbelief. At its root, prayerlessness springs from unbelief. If we really believed God was willing and able to meet our needs, if we really trusted that He has the power to do what's best, if we really admitted that He knows better than we do how things ought to go, we would pray. That means that our problem when it comes to prayer is not technique. It's not getting the words right. I love the fact that Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, when His disciples said, teach us to pray, He gave them like a really simple prayer. Pray then this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Just a simple, basic prayer. Not elaborate, not like the scribes and Pharisees were given to. Many, many words in order to be, you know, in public in order to be seen. It was simple expression of dependence upon God with a desire to see His will be done. Our problem is not technique when it comes to praying. Our problem is unbelief. Now what stands between our unbelief and our prayerlessness? How do we know that that's what's happening? It's not just that we're not praying. There's something that's filling that gap and it is self-reliance. It's self-reliance. We, we think, you know, if I work hard at my marriage, if I work hard at parenting, if I work hard at trusting God in my singleness, if I work hard on my spiritual growth, I, I read my Bible every single morning, uh, you know, I, I, I go to church every Sunday. But we do those things without a sense of dependence upon God. God, help me. I love David's prayer at the end of Psalm 139, 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It is a prayer of dependence. To think that I can just, apart from reliance upon God's grace, apart from asking God to do things in me, that I can just double down on my marriage, on my parenting, on trusting God in my singleness, or just double down on doing my Bible reading every day without relying on God is self-reliance that springs from an unbelief because we leave God out of the equation. Where does that unbelief leave us? Well, frustrated by our trials. Perplexed by our problems, just like the disciples were perplexed. Powerless in the face of evil because we literally can't live the Christian life without the help of God. We can't do life in our own strength and in our own power. Now, you know, what kind of praying is Jesus talking about back in verse 29? Jesus said concerning the, the uh, exorcism of this demon, this kind can only come out by prayer. So, you know, commentators are, are divided here. Is he talking about that particular kind of demon, which was identified as a deaf and mute spirit or, or demon because that was how it was being expressed in the boy. So did that kind require prayer? Or was it that you know, any of this kind of um, uh, spiritual engagement in casting out demons requires prayer? Maybe. Or is it just like, listen, you know, whenever you're dealing, well, how do we make a application of this then and I'm going to talk about demon possession a little bit in the in the next point but certainly what this means for us is that when it comes to spiritual warfare as we read about in Ephesians chapter 6 and the reality that our battle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the principalities in the heavenly realms what this means is that we must pray but if Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 pray then this way and it's a simple basic prayer and if Paul says in 2 Thessalonians we're to pray without ceasing, then it is certainly true that there is never a time in which we need not pray. So in other words, specific application in this text had to do with dealing with spiritual realities for those disciples in that place. We know from the rest of Scripture we need to pray when it comes to dealing with spiritual realities that we have to deal with in terms of opposition in the heavenly realms but there's never a place in which prayer is not needed if we're to pray ceaselessly all right i love this quote from dick lucas this this is it man prayer is for the helpless prayer is for the helpless prayer is for those who have confidence in the throne of grace not in themselves. Let's move on a second and look at the Father. And see in the Father His desperation and weakness that is directed toward Jesus. So, let's clear the air about demon possession. All right, Let's just deal with that because I don't want you to miss everything else that's going on here. Um, C.S. Lewis, you know, this is a great go-to quote when we're talking about the reality of, of spiritual warfare. 
there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So in other words, we can either have a, 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 an unhealthy view of Satan and the reality of spiritual warfare in the sense that we think it's really nothing to be concerned about and kind of have a materialistic view. Or we can have a view in which we think that there is a devil behind every corner and a demon underneath every disease and have an unhealthy view in that sense as well. Now, I, I love to commend to you, this is the fourth time now in uh, Mark's Gospel, I think, where we've talked about uh, demon possession and, de- and, the, and Satan and um, spiritual warfare. A book that I've recommended, I think, every time is a book titled Satan Cast Out by Frederick Leahy. Um, it's an older book, it's from the 70s. It doesn't feel that long ago, but it is. Right? Satan Cast Out by Frederick Leahy. It is an excellent resource. It really says, what does the Bible say? Right? It just starts there. What does Scripture tell us? Old Testament, New Testament. What, did, what was the practice in the uh, early church? What do we see happening throughout history? Uh, wonderful but brief little book that I encourage you to pick up. All right, so, so what do we know? We, we know from Scripture that demon possession was a thing. Right? We, we see it in Mark's Gospel here, right in front of us. We read about it in other places in the Gospels. Uh, we don't see in the Gospels this idea that you know, whenever somebody was sick and came for healing, it actually was a demon that was the issue. Because there are plenty of times when people were just sick and Jesus healed them. There were no demons being cast out. And so the idea that there's a demon of epilepsy or a demon of you know, cancer or a demon of this, that, or the other thing just doesn't square with Scripture at all. In fact, this looks like epilepsy, but it's probably better to say he had epileptic-type <laughs> symptoms because of what was going on with the demon possession here. That leads to the other thing that we learn about demon possession, which, and, and this is indicative of what Satan is trying to do in general, and that is deface and destroy the image of God in man, mankind, men and women. We know that from the uh, hor- you know, horrific and sad account of the Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 5, this man who had a legion of demons and he was living among the tombs and, and cutting himself and not even known by his name anymore. He was just the demon-possessed one, according to the people in the, in the town. It was a tragic story. And of course, we see it here in Mark chapter 9 as well with this boy. The goal of Satan is to deface and destroy the image of God in people. Uh, it's very important to remember that a Christian, someone who is regenerate, somebody who has genuine faith in God, is born again, cannot be demon-possessed. Let me read you some scripture and just uh, summarize them. A Christian is someone who has been born again. John 3, 5. A Christian is a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 A Christian is a part of the body of Christ. Ephesians 1.23 A Christian is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.9 A Christian is a temple 
of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19 A Christian is not able to be separated from the love of God in Christ, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, or angels nor rulers or principalities. Romans 8.38-39 John tells us in 1 John 4, 4 that the one who is in a Christian is greater than the one who is in the world. It is impossible for a Christian to be demon-possessed. However, we ought to recognize that demon possession is a thing. You especially hear this when it comes to missionary reports um, on the frontier, especially where missionaries are going into areas that are really uh, given over to the occult. But that actually ought to remind us of the fact that as spiritism and the occult becomes more and more of a, a attraction, an attraction in our culture, which it is, then the possibility that demon possession becomes a thing here in, in the States ought to be something that we are sensitive to. We must take the reality of spiritual warfare seriously. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, Peter tells us that the devil is a roaring lion prowling about looking for someone to devour. And yet, the very next verse, 1 Peter 5, 9 says, resist him, firm in the faith. Go and read Ephesians 6 and see the way in which we are equipped by God to engage in spiritual warfare against the rulers, the principalities, and the heavenly realm. And then remember what James 4, 7 tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. All right, let's look at this father. This story of a desperate father and his demon-possessed son. It's, it's tragic. You can, you can picture this father who's got this son. We don't know how old he is in the story, but since he was a child... Since he was young, he was possessed by this demon that would cause him to have these epileptic, like it would appear, seizures. Would often seek to throw him into the fire, into the water. You can picture the father looking on the son, and the son has burn wounds on him. Scars because of being thrown into fire. You can picture the desperation of this father and presumably his mother as they see this happening. Remember, they didn't understand the way we understand now what a seizure looks like and and what to do. They had to look at this and know that they had no control over what was happening. To, To reach with desperation into the fire or into the water to rescue this boy. You can picture this father in utter desperation saying, I've got to get my boy to Jesus because I'm hearing that this Jesus can do things. And so he comes. And he doesn't find Jesus, but he finds the nine disciples. He says, okay. As are the messengers, so is the man. I mean, if Jesus is able to do these things, then surely his disciples will be able to do these things. This is fine. And they can't do anything. And so here's this father that now is even more distraught. He's, he's probably watching the scribes and the disciples arguing with one another, thinking, I don't care about your stuff. I want my boy healed. And then he sees Jesus, and Jesus looks at the crowd, and all this commotion is going on. And what's going on? Jesus says, and the father says, My son, he's afflicted in ways that I can't even describe. 
When I read this, I think of 1 Peter 5.8. The devil roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Dick Lucas says in this instance, the lion had no intention of being denied his kill. And so here this is Father. He brings his son to Jesus. But do you see, that's the key. He brings his son to Jesus. In his desperation, in his weakness, he looks to Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Bring him to me. Bring him to me. And then he doesn't say to the Father, strengthen your faith. What he says to the Father is, trust my strength. Trust my strength. Trust in my ability to do whatever I set out to do. Do not in your faith limit my ability to work. All things are possible, reference to the strength of Jesus, not quantity of faith. All things are possible. This is who I am, Jesus says, through him who believes. We know from the rest of Scripture that we don't need great faith. We need well-directed faith. Even faith the size of a mustard seed directed toward Jesus, the one who is able to do all things, is effective. Jesus says, trust in my ability to do whatever I set out to do. And that's a great way of thinking about faith. Faith asks God to act and then trusts Him to do what's best. Faith asks God to act and then trusts Him to do what's best. So what happens? Jesus heals the boy. The demons cast out. The desperate Christ dependent prayer of the Father is answered. So what are we to do? We are to direct our desperation toward Jesus. We are to flee to Jesus with our weakness. Not not leaving that behind, but I'm going to bring the little bit of faith that I have. I'm I'm not going to acknowledge my desperation and my weakness. Bring it all. To Jesus. Flee to Him depending on what He can do. What do we do when our prayers aren't answered? Pray for the strength to trust God for the answer. Pray for the strength to trust that God both knows and has the ability to do what is best. Do so praying. I believe, help my unbelief. But don't stop asking. I love the passage in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus tells the parable about the persistent widow who kept knocking on the judge's door seeking justice. And the judge finally wakes up and says, Fine, I'll hear the case if it'll shut you up. And Jesus said he told that parable to teach his disciples they ought always to pray and never give up. So yes, pray, I believe, help my unbelief. Take your kids to Jesus, praying, I believe, help my unbelief. 
but keep taking them to Jesus. Take your marriage to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief, but don't stop taking your marriage to Jesus. Take your singleness to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief, but don't stop taking your singleness to Jesus. Take your family, your unbelieving family members. Take your church, this church. Take it to Jesus. Jesus, do a work in this church that can only be described by your power and not the power of man. Seek revival. Take your own heart to Jesus. Ask great things of God. I love this uh, line from this hymn by John Newton. Um, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. Ask of Jesus. Don't stop asking. When there isn't an answer forthcoming, ask that God would give you the grace to trust in His power and His timing. Do so bringing your desperation and your weakness directed toward Jesus, crying out, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Third, let's look at Jesus. We'll finish up here with this urgent compassion toward a faithless generation. Where do I get urgent compassion? Well, first, see his compassion all throughout this text. See it in the word O in verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation. That's how laments begin. Oh, faithless generation. Not, you faithless generation. This is the heart of Jesus over, it reminds me of when Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem and weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you would believe in the one who has been sent you, yet even this day, you've turned away. This is the heart of Jesus toward a faithless generation. There's compassion here. There's urgency here. The hour of his departure is near. How much longer will I be with you? Implication, not long. And yet Jesus acts. He has compassion for this broken boy. I love when Jesus says, bring him to me. The father cries out, if you can do anything, have compassion. And Jesus has compassion. Jesus patiently instructs his disciples. Guys, you forgot to pray. He has that same urgent compassion toward us. If you're here this morning, if you're watching this morning or whenever you may be watching it, and you wonder, does Jesus really have interest in me? Hear the heart of Jesus in this passage. Oh, unbelieving person. Or, oh, you who professed faith in me a long time ago but have wandered away, or oh, you who feel as though your faith is so weak, direct your weakness and your dependence toward me. Come to me with that little bit of faith and all that faithlessness. Come to me with that. Jesus, in the end, lifts up this boy. And commentators are divided on this. Some want to say, and I'm so sympathetic to this, 
Here's a little hint at the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, that would just seal off this story so well, wouldn't it? But here's what we can take away from this. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, of those whom the Father has given to him, and of whom he said, I will never cast them away. If you're a Christian, that's you. Jesus says, I will raise that person up at the last day. And so what we do see here in the boy is the reality of who each and every one of us is spiritually prior to Jesus bringing new birth, changing our hearts, bringing us from deafness with regard to the Word of God, and raising us up spiritually that we might have faith in Him. And it's also a picture of what will happen on the last day when Jesus returns. We will lie down in death unless Jesus Christ returns before that happens. And the hope and the confidence that every follower of Christ has is that as with this boy who didn't even know what was about to happen, after a long, hard life marked only by suffering, imagine, unable to speak, unable to hear, completely aware inside of everything that's going on, but unable to hear and speak, is now laying down as though dead and Jesus lifts him up. Whatever your life has been like up to this point, whenever you have felt like everything that's happening inside you, you can't give expression to, if your hope is in Jesus Christ, if you direct your dependence and your weakness in faith, even imperfect faith, acknowledging your unbelief toward the one who has the power to save, who will lift you up at the last day. He indeed will lift you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the compassion with which you look upon us. Oh Lord, in the same way that you looked at that crowd, the same way that you wept over Jerusalem, You look now upon people. You do so with compassion, seeking that none should be lost. Your word tells us that. And you offer, through faith in you, salvation. Lord, would you help people look to you in their desperation, in their weakness, receiving the grace that you offer from your compassionate heart with the confidence that you indeed will lift us up on the last day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.